This is a Federal News Network podcast. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is the White House's quarterback for the Zero Trust Drive. CISA is providing shared services and advising agencies on their zero trust and cybersecurity plans in general. At the recent Federal News Network Zero Trust Cyber Exchange, we heard from CISA Senior Technical Director John Sims. CISA has partnered with OMB on zero trust in a number of ways, really starting post solar winds, uh, you know, on the heels of the Executive Order 14028. We saw the need to step in and provide some uh, additional guidance to agencies along the lines of zero trust. Uh, that's really where the zero trust maturity model, you know, as an idea came, you know, into existence. And so as we continue to, you know, support the executive order, we've had a number of close conversations and coordinations with LMB to, you know, help formulate the strategy and execution of, of zero trust across the federal government, uh, leading to M2209, the federal zero trust strategy. And so one of the ways we've been supporting agencies, you know, not only in awareness, but also, uh, you know, with some level of training is uh, our organization has uh, established a number of zero trust cyber stats where we perform webinars to uh, look at zero trust concepts in the form of the doing deep dives into the uh, individual pillars out of the zero trust maturity model to really get into a a good conversation with agencies about some specific challenges that they're going to encounter or that they brought to our attention that that are uh, challenging for them as they're looking to plan and execute uh, their journey on zero trust. Got it. Yeah, it seems important. I'm sure agencies have have a lot of questions in these webinars. What What are some of the big questions and challenges that you see cutting across agencies so far? Well, so far, it's it's really been focused on identity. We're lucky to have the expertise of not only Eric Mill out of OMB, but also Grant Dasher, who uh, recently joined CISA from Google. And, you know, both of those gentlemen are true zero trust, you know, experts uh, in identity. So it's it's allowed us to really you know, go beyond the the uh, multi-factor authentication with the PIV uh, credentials. Looking at how we can utilize FIDO to and and other mechanisms to really encourage strengthening the identity and access management uh, capabilities to support zero trust longer term. And so, how can agencies learn more about these webinars? How often are they held? You know, is is that kind of a key venue for you guys to spread the gospel of zero trust? Yeah, so um, we hold them regularly, and we have a outreach team that manages the uh, the cyber stats to you know make sure the agencies are aware of it, what we're going to talk about, and I can tell you the last several zero trust uh, cyber stats that we've had, we've had upwards of you know seven hundred participants on multiple, so we're catching you know a pretty wide audience here with these with these events, so. I think it's been a a good way for us to have very focused conversations, give the agencies a chance to ask questions. And, and, you know, the questions that we can't answer, you know, within the one hour to two hour sessions, we do a follow up and we're also looking to generate frequently asked questions to to support the longer term need. Great. Well, another big way that CISA is driving the zero trust conversation forward is through the maturity model that kind of forms a basis of um, the OMB strategy. 
And that came out as a draft, I believe, last year. And I think you're looking at an update now. What can you tell us about the maturity model and the feedback that you've gotten on that so far? Sure. So just to, just to make sure everybody's on, on the same page, the zero trust maturity model that was developed by CISA, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, was really developed to support agencies uh, out of Executive Order 14028 to uh, develop their uh, 60-day plans. Uh, we knew that agencies would be looking to CISA to figure out how they map the CDM program, for example, or you know some of the other programs that they take advantage of through CISA. Uh, to Zero Trust. So a small team of us got together and and put it together. Uh, We did release the draft out for public comment back in September. We received over 370 comments from a wide variety of partners in in industry, federal agencies, research and academic uh, organizations, as well as individuals and some international organizations. So uh, we received more questions and, and comments out of the identity pillar than than any of the others, obviously. Um, and I think that's that's one of the cornerstones of, of, of Zero Trust. So it, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it gives us a lot to uh, look forward to in terms of like how we're going to uh, make adjustments to the maturity model in this next revision. Uh, and identity as well as the other pillars. We're expecting that the next version is going to come out towards the end of the year. It takes a little while for us to go through and adjudicate the comments. Quite frankly, we felt like there were other deliverables such as the cloud security technical reference architecture that really required more attention and focus since it was a deliverable out of the executive order that we've been focusing on. Uh, so we have uh, been working on the maturity model, but uh, it's just taking a little bit longer than we anticipated. Yeah. And, and I mean, it, it seems as if the, the draft version right now is, is enough to get agencies off to a, a head start and, and enough to kind of build these initial plans around. You mentioned identity again is one of those big areas that you might look to update along with the other pillars, of course, but in terms of feedback on, on identity, what is industry saying? What are agencies saying about that pillar in particular? Yeah, so um, one, of the, one of the key things was making sure that, you know, the government's looking beyond, you know, the HSPD-12, the PIB badge, and making sure that, you know, we're leaning as forward as we can. So there's that element of it. But quite frankly, I think it gives us the opportunity also to make sure that this next version is is more aligned with, you know, M2209, looking at how we're encouraging agencies to leverage, um, you know, mul- uh, multi-factor authentication that's uh, phishing resistant. So there's a number of things we want to make sure that we capture in this next version. And that's why we're not jumping out of the gate, trying to get it out as quickly as we can. We want to make sure that there's enough thought into how we revise it to make sure it's a longer lasting and enduring document. John Sims, Senior Technical Advisor at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. He spoke with Justin Doubleday at Federal News Network's recent Zero Trust Cyber Exchange. See and hear all of the exchange content at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up 
through the government, ultimately becoming the chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security. He's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village. That was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards 
two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2 of Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, I'm not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online.